So I came across an interesting article the other day, and within this article they referenced a book called The Day America Told the Truth, and it's uh, written by James Patterson and Peter Kim, if you're interested. But these two authors, they went throughout the United States and asked a series of questions and then compiled all the results into the book. But the reason why I found uh, the book and the article compelling is because one of the questions they asked was, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? Have you ever thought about that? What would you be willing to do for $10 million? It seems like a lot of money to me, but this book was actually written in 1991. So if you take inflation into account in 2018, $10 million in 1991 is actually closer to $20 million today. So maybe a better question would be, what would you be willing to do for $20 million? Here's some of the responses they found, hence the title of the book. It says, 25% of people would abandon their entire family. So there you go. Uh, 23% would become a prostitute for a week or more. I don't know. Uh, 16% would give up their American citizenship. Uh, 10% would withhold testimony, letting a murderer go free. 7% would kill a total stranger. Run for your lives, everybody. We don't know what people are going to do. And then 3% would put their children up for adoption. So I don't know about you. Uh, Depending on the day, you can have my kid. $10 million, I'll pay you to take, you know what I'm saying? uh, But listen, if I've learned anything in my time on this planet, I'm guessing a new version of this study would reveal some even more alarming numbers than that. Uh, I don't think I could argue from a point of credibility that we have become more generous as a society or or what we're going to do with our money would be any different than what they were doing in 1991. But here's why I bring this up, because I've noticed within our culture specifically, our desire for stuff is not proportionately linked to our income. In other words, uh, our stuff gives us an appetite for more stuff. It never quenches the appetite, and it doesn't matter if you can afford the stuff or not. Here's the problem with that, because having the next big thing and it not quenching your cravings at all, like we always want more stuff in our country now, we have an average debt load of $265,000 per household. And so if you take into account mortgages, car loans, student loans, credit cards, all of that, $265,000 is what people owe. God help us, our government certainly is not giving us a model to strive for. If the American government was the average family, you would make $50,000 a year, you would spend $100,000 a year, and you would borrow $200,000 a year. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, the government is not, it's out of control. So, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know we've been in this sermon series called Home Wreckers, and ultimately the goal behind the series is for us to learn how to live counterculturally. That's the intent. How do we live in a world that uh, is different than what we hold to as far as our values are concerned? How can we live in such a way that really makes a difference? Week one, we talked about our communication. That's a big deal, how we communicate. The Bible tells us that when we communicate, we're either speaking life into people or we're taking life out of people. 
Your words are so powerful, there's only two outcomes. You're either adding value or you're taking value from people's lives. You're either building them up or you're tearing them down. Last week, we talked about sex. Sex can be a home wrecker if it's not used the way God intended it. I said the problem isn't having a sex drive. The problem is letting sex drive. Our problem is we've turned a good thing into a God thing, and now the only thing people care about is how much sex they can have. This week, as you've probably guessed, we're going to talk about money. You might be interested to know that the number one reason listed on divorce papers for the divorce is money. It's kind of astonishing when you think about it. Money has become so powerful and important to our lives that it's literally wrecking homes. Yeah, here's the problem. Nobody actually thinks stuff is a stumbling block for them. Now, certainly they'll tell you if they're having money problems. Nobody ever has enough money, but uh, we all acknowledge that. But what if money wasn't the actual problem? What if it was something under the surface that was really the problem? It was just revealing itself through the money. I don't know about you, but I've never had the conversation with somebody who says, you know why I'm so unhappy? I just have too much stuff. I just have too much money. If I could just get rid of all my belongings and live in a van down by the river, you know what I'm talking about, then I would be happy. It's not the case. Nobody thinks that way. Everybody thinks, well, if I just had more, you fill in the blank, then I would be happy. It's why the Bible says in Romans 12 too, that if we're really going to change our lives, we need God to change how we think. It's been our theme verse for this entire four-week series, that God's got to change how we think if, it's, if we're going to be able to make a difference. And, and if we are going to make a difference, you might recall me saying that the best way to work on us is to start with me. So really, if we drill down on it, the question I'm trying to answer today is how does God want us as individuals to think about money so that we can make a difference in our world. To do that, I want us to look at a parable that Jesus told. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. You can go ahead and grab it. You'll need to find Luke chapter 16. Luke is going to be in the New Testament part of your Bible. Just look for some guys' names. If you're new to the Bible, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how that will go. And you want the big number 16. As I mentioned, Jesus is telling a parable here, which is a little story that communicates a big truth. This is one of Jesus' favorite ways to teach His people. And Luke records the most parables out of any of the other Gospels, 24 to be exact. And this specific story is about a guy who gets fired, which don't feel bad for him. He deserved it. And he knew it. But let me just say in advance that this is perhaps the most difficult, complicated parable within all of the Bible. So feel free to disagree with my interpretation if you want. But I think you'll get a lot to think about and you'll have a lot of good things to discuss in your small groups this week because basically one guy rips off another guy and Jesus goes, you know what, that guy was on to something. Except if you look previously in the book, it says things like, don't steal. And so it gets a little confusing when Jesus says, hey, that guy who stole, that was awesome. Uh, So we need to kind of flesh that out. Let's check it out. Luke 16, we'll start right in verse 1. says, He also, Jesus, said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. 
and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am too ashamed to beg. That's the predicament. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. That's roughly 900 gallons of oil, olive oil. So it's no small sum. It'd take about 150 trees to make that much olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. It's a half off sale. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. This would be about a hundred acres of wheat today. I'm no John Deere, but uh, considering the average in Kansas was 75 bushels last year, that seems like a lot. Siri told me that there are 60 pounds of wheat per uh, bushel. So if you take that times 7,500 bushels, you get 450,000 pounds of wheat. That's where we're at in this story. He said to him, take your bill, write 80, 20% off sale. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Circle star, underline, highlight, whatever you do in your Bible or in your notes, that word shrewdness. The master commended, he, he congratulated the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? That's important. And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So the story is simply this. There's a really rich farmer, kind of like all the farmers I know, right? Just... Super rich. Some of you farmers know what I'm talking about. Uh, But the farmer is self-aware enough to say, you know what? I know plants. I don't know money. And so he hires a money manager. This is his accountant, his CPA, his bookkeeper. This would be the kind of person who's keeping track of the retirement portfolio, the real estate portfolio, the investment portfolio. He's looking at income. He's looking at expenses. He's supposed to make sure that prudent decisions with his master's money are being made. This is arguably one of the most important people within the company because they're making sure all the bills get paid on time. They're making sure the government is getting their cut on time. That's kind of a big deal. They're making sure the CEO stays out of prison. Business owners don't tend to do well in prison. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they get sold for cigarettes and whatnot is what I'm told. That's, I don't know. I've never been to prison. I'm just saying. I'm happy we have a good money manager here because I don't end up in prison. Uh, but all of a sudden, this rich man hears that his money manager is not doing a good job. 
We're not given any indication that he's been stealing money or like laundering money, but he's just not been making prudent decisions with his boss's money. So the boss gets light of it. He says, I need an audit. He brings in an auditor. Now the manager realizes he's in trouble. He's not done what he's supposed to do. And it dawns on him, once I get fired, I'm not going to get another job. They're going to call my boss. He's not going to give me a good reference. I'm not exactly what you would be, call blue collar. All right, I'm frail. I'm skinny. My hands are manicured, lightly lotioned. Okay, I can't, can't dig ditches. I'm going to have to figure out something else to do. I'm too proud to beg. This gives him a clever idea. It's wicked, but clever. And the wicked, clever idea is since I'm still legally employed by my master and I still represent him legally in business transactions, a lot of people owe him money. I'll get on the phone, start giving them discounts, and cancel their debt. And as I cancel their debt to him, he will lose money, but somebody's going to give me a job and look after me because they're going to make money. So he gets on the horn. To put this in perspective, this would be like you taking that $265,000 average debt that the American has, and you get a call from the lender, and they say, you know, we're thinking about it, and we've decided today's your lucky day. We're going to give you a discount. Say, really? How much? How about 50 cents on the dollar? You write us a check today. We'll cancel all the rest of your debt. That would be a bigger miracle than walking on water. You say, that's fantastic. And who am I speaking with? You say, you're speaking with Bill. And by the way, I'm looking for a job. That's what Bill would say. So Bill here is really shrewd and clever with his idea. We don't know exactly how much money this costs the boss because we're dealing with commodities, not necessarily straight dollars. But to make some sort of modern comparison, we know there's roughly 7,500 bushels of wheat within this story. And according to Google, a bushel of wheat is selling for about $3.86, which equates to about $30,000. So imagine you had a $30,000 debt on your credit card and the credit card company calls you up and says, hey, we're taking $15,000 off the debt. It's good news. But this is where it gets confusing because the Bible says, Jesus says, that the rich man, he was impressed by how shrewd this guy was. Even though it cost him thousands of dollars, he thought to himself, wow, this guy's never really shown much ambition or creativity, this was a pretty good idea for him. So here's what we have to unpack. What's the point of the parable? Parables teach one lesson. If you take a parable and you try and squeeze the life out of it and get 47 lessons, you'll get yourself in a lot of trouble because parables only teach one lesson. So the question is for us, what is the lesson? Well, here's what we know. We know the parable is about a man who becomes aware of his future. To be fair, most of us in this room today are not aware of our future, correct? Most of us have no idea what tomorrow holds. It's an educated guess at best. I would doubt any of us are going, okay, in two weeks I'll get fired. A week later my house will be foreclosed on and then I'm going to be on the streets. Most of us don't have that information, but this manager did. And with that future in mind, he began to live, he began to prepare, he began to plan for that day of reckoning. And because of that, the rich man said, that's 
brilliant, shrewd and brilliant, to which Jesus says, and I wish the children of light would live that way. What's he mean by that? Well, without going too deep into it yet, the implication is that most of his children live as though there's not going to be a day where they stand in front of him and give an account for all that he's entrusted to them. In other words, the point of the parable is that God is the rich farmer. We are the money managers, and there are either good managers or there are bad managers. The Bible here in my translation uses the word manager, but some of your translation will use the word steward. The word steward is a very significant word within Christianity. The Bible uses that word a number of times. I didn't put these in your notes, but you might want to check them out. 1 Corinthians 4.2 and 1 Peter 4.10. They're good examples of of what you should be stewarding. 1 Corinthians 4.2, 1 Peter 4.10. But what I want you to know is a steward is one who takes what belongs to somebody else and then they wisely distribute it however they see fit. So really the question you need to answer today is are you a good steward or are you a bad steward? You say, well, I don't know. Good question. I like it when you answer my questions with a question because it allows me to speak more. But uh, when, when you can see that Jesus commends this man for being a shrewd steward as if to say shrewdness could be an acceptable indicator on whether or not you're being a good steward. So now we've got to be on the same page about what shrewdness is. Because I don't think being shrewd has a particularly good connotation within the English language. So again, what do we know? We know that this money manager, when he finds out about his audit, he's doing everything he can to provide for, to care for, to allocate for his future with shadiness, with creativity, with all sorts of unscrupulous activity. He's wheeling and dealing because he knows the end of his story. And Jesus is going, man, I wonder if my children would live any differently if they remembered how this ends. And so for us today, here's what I think Jesus would mean with reference to shrewdness. Jot this down if you're taking notes. Do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Y'all like what I did there? Poet. I actually read that somewhere, so I can't even take credit for it. But uh, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Do your spending, your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. See, the, in the story, everything belongs to the rich man, and the money manager is to oversee the investing, the spending, the saving, the tithing of the rich man's money. In the same way, ultimately, everything belongs to God. He made it. He owns it. It's all His. And He entrusts to us some of His creation to steward. With regards to money, I think the Bible teaches that God tells us we should spend it on the things that we need. He says we should save some for a rainy day. He commands us to give some to the purposes of the gospel, to help the poor and needy with generosity and grace, and to make investments for our future. The question is, have we done a good job with that? That's the question. How are you doing with what God gave you? 
Let me ask you some more definitive questions. Do you have a retirement account? Do you have life insurance? Do you have disability insurance? Do you have college funds for your children? Do you have plans for worst case scenario? Do you understand how to make money? How to save money? How to spend money? How to invest money? How to track money? Do you know how to negotiate a deal? Do you know how to read the fine print? Do you know how to shop for a bargain? All of those would be inclusive in knowing where your money is going and being a shrewd steward. Because we do our giving while we're living because we want to know where it's going. That's what being shrewd is all about. And what Jesus is doing here is He's giving us a positive lesson from a negative example. Why would He do that? Because Even people who sin have something to teach us. That's kind of the undergirding lesson here. Sometimes a negative example can also teach us a positive lesson. For example, if you want to have a good marriage, don't just learn from everyone with a good marriage. Some people have bad marriages. They have things to teach you as well. If you want to learn from someone who has really walked with God and you want them to teach you, that's great. Also get to know a few people who have messed up their walk with God because they have something to teach you as well. You need to learn from those who are successful in business and finance, and you also need to learn from some people who have made some tragic mistakes because if we're humble, everyone has something to teach us, positive and negative. And even if it's a negative example it can be a positive lesson nonetheless. So Jesus is taking this negative example. He's trying to remind us that every human being is a steward on this earth. God owns the world. He owns us. The Bible says, for we were bought with a price, as it says in Corinthians. So He owns our lives and what we do with our lives and what we do with our money. All of those are matters of stewardship. Furthermore, we have an indication here of divine displeasure when stewards waste the goods into their trust. I think it's clear that what God is looking for from His people is not success. It's faithfulness. He doesn't measure us by our bank accounts. He doesn't measure us by our degree of authority. I mean, maybe you here today, you think your task seems insignificant. But God has given it to you and He wants to see that you are faithful in it before He entrusts you and promotes you in His kingdom. Jesus pretty much lays out for you that uh, you can't be trusted with earthly things. Why would God bless you with spiritual things? It's kind of a shocking statement. Yet here's what I find most unsettling about this and, this and why this is one of the most difficult parables within all of Scripture. I've already alluded to it, but... In Jesus' kingly view of money, He says Christians, above all other people, should be the most shrewd. Not sinful, shrewd. See, Jesus implies that as there is wealth, as there is possessions, as there is influence and opportunity, He says that sadly, oftentimes it's the Christians who are the most naive and who don't understand how to steward it. And the result is we always lose when it comes to finances and wealth. So he says we need to learn how to be shrewd. 
Just to prove that point, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture, so that'd be one thing if I was just taking this out and saying, hey, the Bible teaches you need to be shrewd. We, I mean, the Scripture needs to back that up. Well, in Matthew ten sixteen, Jesus will go on to say, we should be shrewd as serpents, yet innocent as doves. Shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. Snake birds. Okay, that's what you have to be, is a snake bird. Are you all snake birds today? Because that's what Jesus is asking you to be. Do your giving, your spending, while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. That's being shrewd. Knowing where your money is going is being shrewd. Now, let me give you three ways you can actually do that and know where your money is going so that you can be shrewd as the Bible tells us that we need to be, okay? Number one, return the first. You want to know where your money's going, you need to return the first. Why was the manager in trouble? He wasn't returning to the master that which was the master's. There were all kinds of outstanding debts. Now, clearly, the master didn't need it, right? It had to be brought to his attention that he was missing out on thousands and thousands of dollars. Translation, how much money do you have to have to realize, excuse me, to not realize you're missing thousands and thousands of dollars? You got to have a lot of money to ignore that on the bank statement. Same is true about God. God is the rich man. He doesn't need your money. God doesn't need you to give. Just for the record, neither do I. I don't need you to give. You need you to give. That's what we see in Scripture. That why would He entrust you with spiritual things if you can't be faithful in these things? It's a stewardship issue. You're going to have to answer to God one day for what you gave. But here's what you really need to hear me say. When the Bible talks about tithing, which it does frequently, Jesus spoke uh, more about money than he did any other subject. But over and over, when you see God use the word tithe in Scripture, it's always prefaced with return. Return to me. Return to me the tithe. Return to me 10%. And God's saying, this was mine You need to return to me so that I can allow you and bless the other 90% that you have. This is a stewardship issue. It's all His. Which is why point number two is you need to steward the rest. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, you already said that. You spent like 30 minutes telling me this is a stewardship issue. You're supposed to be telling me, how do I steward it? Okay, well, calm down. Look at verse 9 again. He basically says, use your money to love people. Jesus says, spend your money so that people will be your friend. It's pretty much what he says. Sounds kind of odd, right? But you know what? It works. How many of you noticed that? You ever met somebody who's really generous and lonely? No. (laughs) I mean, why come nobody ever hangs out with this guy? And how come he's always alone? Ah, they're just too generous, you know? They're spending money on everybody and that people just hate that kind of generosity and it repels them that they just get all the stuff from the guy. No. Think about something. Jesus, He's a giver. 
The whole theology of the Bible is that he gives us salvation and that word grace and God's relationship toward us is one of grace where he lavishly and generously gives us, gladly gives to us. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son, the greatest gift of all. God is a giver. Jesus is a giver. Think about the promise of heaven. The Bible says we're going to be clothed in heaven. So what we wear will be a gift. The Bible says that Jesus is preparing us a room in heaven. So where we live, it will be a gift. It says we're going to eat in heaven, which is a gift. It says we're going to drink wine in heaven, which is a gift. Nobody's going to be upset about the gift. In other words, the entire kingdom of God is nothing but a series of gifts. Nothing that we brought with us but everything that God gives graciously to us. And because of that, he says, hey, because all this stuff I'm, I'm blessing you with, I want you to bless other people. Which means, listen, God clearly doesn't think there's anything wrong with earning money. He just expects that we're going to bless others with it. So hear me when I say that, God wants you to earn money. It's not so that you can be sinful or greedy. But God absolutely commands you to be a hard worker and earn money. And let me go on to say this as well, because I think this is a common misconception within Christianity. The highest calling in your life is not necessarily to be a pastor or a missionary. God certainly calls some people to do that, but He gave you your talents and your abilities to be a teacher or a coach or a fireman or a businessman. Like He wants you to use your abilities to sell insurance or sell commodities. He wants you to make money, but when you get your money, it may not be to increase your standard of living. It may be to increase your standard of giving. It may be so that you could be more generous to more people. And in so doing, being friendly. But listen, it also means some people aren't going to make as much money as other people. So you have to do number three, which is focus on true riches. Focus on true riches. What's that mean? Let's use Jesus as an example. Everybody says, well, Jesus was poor. We should be poor. To be fair, Jesus was poor for about 33 years. Before that, where did Jesus live? Heaven. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's a pretty fantastic zip code. Okay, I've never been there, but the brochure is compelling. Streets lined with gold, right? I mean, you got so much money, you got the boys down at Cornejo paying the streets, you know, in gold. Like, that's kind of amazing, awesome, pretty rad. So, Jesus was and is eternally God living in heaven, surrounded in riches. The Bible says, for our sake, though he was rich, he became poor. He became poor. So he was born into barn, he was laid in a manger, he was raised by a blue-collar worker, construction dad, working class, poor, in a small town. Their home was probably no bigger than the parking stall that we place our vehicle in. His mom was likely a teenager. He eventually worked with his dad as a carpenter. He was poor. Even during his earthly ministry, he was couch surfing at friends' houses. He didn't have a regular income. He missed a few meals. He was broke. 
Then for our sake, He went to the cross. He died in our place for our sins as our Savior. He paid our debt to God, our entire spiritual debt, both past, present, and future sins is paid in total by Jesus Christ. And He rose from the dead and He ascended back into heaven. And right now, it's pretty fantastic. He's back to being rich in His heavenly kingdom. So Jesus was both rich and poor. So it can't be that poor is better than rich, or rich is better than poor. Shrewd stewardship by both the rich and the poor is what God requires. Because you can be a bad steward and rich, or you can be a bad steward and poor. Both things are possible. You can blow your money, you can be upside down, you can be extended beyond your means. It's not about rich and poor, it's about stewardship. Shrewd stewardship. But here's what happens in our world. The poor blame the rich. The rich blame the poor. So today the poor will say it's corporate greed. It's all the guys in suits. It's crooked accounting. It's trickle-down economics. It's Wall Street. They've ruined everything. The rich say, no, it's the poor. They're lazy. They keep dropping out of school. They keep having babies in their trailers. They didn't read books. They didn't go to college. They don't have a plan. They're killing us with social welfare and social services. Depending which talk radio show you tune into, these are your options. Rich blame the poor. Poor blame rich. Nobody calls and says, you know what? It's my fault. I apologize. I was not a shrewd steward. I bought stuff I couldn't afford. I didn't work hard at my job. I didn't give to the poor. I didn't give to God. I didn't save for a rainy day. It's my fault. I ask you all to forgive me. Nobody says that. Listen, it's not about the poor. It's not about the rich. It's about being a shrewd steward, whether or not you are rich or poor. The key is, are you worshiping God with what He's given you? That's Jesus' big idea. True riches. That's what He's trying to communicate. To be a shrewd steward means you worship God with your money. It's true riches. Not rich, not poor. Faithful. Look, if you struggle... With $4,000 a month, you're going to struggle with $40,000 a month. You do the exact same. You are what you are. You're either a bad manager with a little or you're a bad manager with a lot. doesn't matter what you have to manage. You'll do the same thing regardless. So as we close, let me ask you a big question. If Jesus set your budget, what would be different? Because see, again, if we're a shrewd steward, ultimately Jesus is the one who should set our budget. It's His wealth. We're just deciding what to do with it. And in the end, if your budget and Jesus' budget don't line up, have you not revealed what's really in your heart? Like if you can't return the first, and if you can't steward the rest, have you not revealed that you're not really focused on true riches? Have you not revealed that you've just fallen too much in love with this world? Make no mistake, this is not your home. One day we will all have to give an account. God's going to do His audit. And I'd rather do my giving while I'm living so I'm knowing where it's going. So when God looks at me, I can say, I know where all the dollars you went that you entrusted to me. I know where all that money went. Anybody else with me on that? Like, I want to be able to tell God, I I did the best I could with where I was at. And I tried to give faithfully and work hard and bless 
others and be generous, not because of what you gave me, but because of what you did for me. You bless me and I want to be a blessing. That's really what God is calling you to do. Focus on true riches. Steward wisely what He's given you. But then also give back to the purposes of God. Sound good? All right, let's pray. God, again, we are humbled by the fact that You've entrusted to us anything. That You've given us this world to live in. That You've given us life and breath this morning to wake up and enjoy the fact that we're here. God, I know people in this room today are struggling with many things. I'm just asking You to encourage them, help them see what You would have them to see. Show them how they can be stewards of their life, both physically, financially, spiritually, mentally, in their relationships. God, let them steward these things well. Help them learn where they can be more generous. Help them learn where they need to be smarter. God, I believe You're teaching us that we need to be diligent and understand what we're doing, specifically with our money. We don't want to be a place that is unwise or bad stewards. So help teach us how you would have us to give. God, we know that the only reason we can do any of these things is because of what your son Jesus accomplished for us on that cross. That he paid our penalty. We deserve death. Wages of sin is death. You earn death by sinning. Christ beat death. He beat sin. He wants to bring you into this family. So if you're here this morning, you've never trusted God as your Savior. The Bible makes it clear that you can do that today. That you can have new life leaving this place by trusting God as your Savior. God's not trying to keep anything from you. He wants you to have life and have it to the full. He just asks that you place your trust in His Son, Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So if you're here this morning, you've never accepted Christ just in your heart, just say, God, I'm sorry. Sorry I lived life my own way. I believe your way is better. I want what you've promised me in Scripture. I want a new life. I believe in your Son, Jesus. I believe He died for me. I believe He rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm made new. Thank you for saving me. God, thank you for new life. Thank you for everyone here this morning. I again ask for your encouragement, your blessing on every area of their life. And together with one voice, everybody said, Amen.